I'm Julie Zerbo. I founded The Fashion Law, which is a website that doesn't just discuss law in relation to the fashion industry, but also my big passion, I suppose, in discussing the industry is looking at it critically and not falling into the politics or the bureaucracy that tends to dictate the content that we see every single day. Julie Zerbo's history is rooted in the world of law and economics. It's from this standpoint that she approaches fashion on her site, The Fashion Law. Introducing a critical voice to fashion media, which Zerbo knows is all too rare in 2018. What part of this industry and that sort of critical thought and analysis is missing because mm -hmm. it's never had a sort of solid foundation or more recently anyways, maybe because we ended up in a space where everyone sort of became bloggers and no one had a sort of foundation to the craft. Mm -hmm. And I wonder like what your thoughts are on like you having obviously a definitive background that allows you to kind of analytically look at things. But a lot of mm -hmm. people, a lot of your peers don't have that. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's what drove blogging from the outset, right? It was all of these people that were not editors, that were quote unquote outsiders. And that's why they originally were so valuable. At the same time, I think that I am really fortunate to come at the industry and stay in terms of my perspective in relation to the industry as truly an outsider. I don't have a fashion background. I have a law and economics background. So it allows me to look at everything in a completely different way than a fashion person would look at it. I think fashion is, and fashion media is its own worst enemy I think it's great that everyone has a voice and, you know, all of these different voices make up a really rich discussion. But at the same time, I think that I personally wish that there were some more traditional writers in this sphere that are our ages or, or younger. And this is me sort of providing my sort of context to it. And I think looking back, like I was one of those people that weren't trained traditionally as a journalist. You know, these are people that honestly looked at it as, well, I like sneakers and I can write. So that became the job itself. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's a, a chance for that to be drawn, pulled back in and to kind of return to a place of credibility. Oh God, that would be so cool. It's like a very challenging topic, but I wonder if like it was really a byproduct of a moment in time. You know, where it was the wild, wild west of like... Of the internet. Yeah, no one knows how to build a blogging business. Mm -hmm. You just kind of go on this path. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like what we're seeing with Facebook today. Like yeah. they're literally learning on the job that you have to protect your data. They There wasn't anything really for them to kind of a, a path for them to follow. And I think that that's like what you're saying. Like yeah. there wasn't really a, a model for yeah. something like this. I mean, I think that it's great for people of different backgrounds to be writing like neither you nor I have a journalism background, but here we are asking questions, talking about these things that matter in our industry. I mean, does that make us any better or not? I'm not sure. Um, I think that 
you don't have to have a journalism background to uh, care about ethics in media. I don't think that most people do, but maybe that's the lawyer in me talking and, and caring so much about authentic, transparent journalism. The idea of authentic, transparent journalism is a key aspect of Zerbo's media presence. In a crowded media space, how can a platform rise above the noise and make their point heard? Even if you do succeed in creating an authentic experience devoid of overt advertisements and branded content, do people even care about real discussion? Everything you mentioned about authenticity and communication, transparency, mm-hmm. what does that mean when the reader actually doesn't even care that much? <laughs> this I've been asking myself that yeah. constantly because people, I don't know if it's that they're so used to being fed branded content in disguise. I feel like maybe that's just a generational thing that people kind of grew up with. Um, I mean, for me, I and my website, we're not serving, you know, 20 million people every month. It's a more niche audience of people that do care. I think that, you know, you have to kind of pick your battle there. And mine is you know, putting forth content for people that, that value, uh, independent writing and independent thought and transparency. That's not going to be everyone though. Whether people care or not, Zerbo is sure of the direction that the fashion law should take, one of authenticity and transparency. But what is the goal at the end of this path? It's all well and good providing substance to fashion media, but if few are willing to listen, then what happens? I think that a lot of the challenges that fashion media faces, it has in common with other industries, whether it be tech or, or music or sports. Um, I think that all probably publishers are up against this wall of people not wanting to read um, and not wanting to do more than look at a meme. And I, I suspect that that is external to our industry. I mean, what do you think? I think that the overall fashion landscape, what like I kind of alluded to a little bit earlier is that it it seemed as though you could be a participant within fashion media without having a particular set of credentials or like an underlying knowledge. You could just be like, have an opinion that was sufficient. Whereas, you know, soon that even having an opinion sort of got pushed out in favor of being in the good graces of brands. Mm -hmm. I think in general, that's sort of how most people looked at it. Like, how do I look at it? When I look back at our editorial stance when I was at Hypebeast, it was like very neutral. It's like, you know what, the... The fact that you're posting about it, that's enough because you've sort of editorialized it by choosing it. And that was sort of the extent of it. And it wasn't something that we were ever going to engage in. I, I think looking back, like whether or mm-hmm. not that was the right decision, I don't, maybe Hypebeast was never meant to be that platform to be the critical thought and analysis of the industry. It was mainly meant to be just a place to look at products, you know, mm-hmm. news, period. Mm-hmm. And that is maybe the, maybe there are conflicting sort of things to consider. It's like, you know, is it just news or Mm -hmm. is there sort of like an editorial side to this that Mm -hmm. needs to be further promoted? But I would also argue is that like, 
to have an opinion, to formulate something that's stress tested or, or bulletproof, it just requires a lot of time and effort. And like, I wouldn't say you need a background, but just having a thought process and the underlying way of breaking down arguments or creating arguments anyways, that's not easy for everybody. Like, no. especially now, like, you know, maybe fashion and media in itself, the topic, the topics that dominate are mm-hmm. really stuff that are driven by predominantly hype and it's like it doesn't need any further explanation perhaps perhaps I mean not to say that you shouldn't try but you know at the end of the day like the average reader is okay with just seeing a few images absolutely what does success look like for you in that realm success for me with the site uh, in regards to that is is quite wide ranging you know if an article can can impact you know how brands are approaching sponsored content which articles have that's a win uh, success is also formulating or, or building a community of people that care and maybe you know building that out a little bit. What role does critical thought and analysis play from a media perspective onto the brands themselves? Like, do you think that if there was more sort of that analysis and and critical thought that brands and their direction and what they would be accountable for would change? I mean, I think that if we've learned anything over the past year and even the past few months in particular, it's that brands fashion or otherwise, any consumer facing brands really are accountable to the general public, especially publicly owned ones, um, because their stock prices will will reflect um, the way that people are viewing their brands. Uh, so I think that, yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, is it like an overnight fix? No, but I think that now more than ever, uh, critical thinking does stand to impact the activities of brands. And I'm, I'm curious, do you see just like continual battle lines being drawn on the internet where it's like, oh, you're someone that cares about purpose and transparency in your media. So you go here. If you don't care, you can be pushed off to the side. Like, is that good or bad? I mean, I don't really, I try not to approach it that way. Um, just because I think, you know, I didn't always care about ethics and journalism. Um, and I think that a lot of, uh, young people, I'm not old by the way, a lot of young people I think are, I mean, maybe used to reading truly branded content and content put forth by influencers and they don't care about, um, you know, its origins necessarily. I think that they're, they're open-minded They're They have access to more information than any other generation before them. I think that, you know, if, if one article can impact them, that's, that's a great thing. Um, I think the challenge there is making the information accessible, digestible, attractive. Although Zerbo recognizes that accessibility is key in attracting the attention of the majority, is it possible that fashion media has become overly accessible and in doing so lost its spark of excitement for Zerbo? After six years of running the fashion law, she seems vaguely disillusioned with the industry. Despite the occasional flash of inspiration, 
Fashion is now more valuable to her as a vehicle that can be used to connect industries and demographics. At some point, fashion kind of died and it's just not enough on its own anymore. This is, I've been thinking about this a lot, just how relevant fashion is on its own in 2018. I'm skeptical. Actually, let me, let me ask you what, what was fashion to you growing up? And then what is fashion to you now? Well, I'm like one of those weird girls that wasn't like obsessed with fashion and wanted to be in the fashion industry. I like didn't want to be in the fashion industry, but for me it was, I mean, it was clothes. That's what fashion was to me. It was clothing. Some of it was really beautiful and really well-made and thus valuable to me. Um, That's not to say that, you know, I wasn't ever like intrigued by fast fashion because I was, this is over the past decade that I've just completely sworn that off. Um, But now I think I've just learned too much to really see the beauty in a lot of it. I mean, there are designers and there are moments when I'm like, this is incredible. This is why I love this industry so much. And at the end of the day, I really do love the fashion industry. Um, But it's hard to forget that this is first and foremost a business. This is particularly with conglomerates like LVMH and Caring and Richemont having so much control over the climate of the industry. It's difficult for me to look past the fact that this is a well-oiled machine. Do you see yourself contextualizing it differently? Like your, your interest in it has changed where before you're like, I I really appreciate the creativity. Now it's shifted towards something else. My interest is more cultural, culturally driven. Um, that's, what's interesting to me, kind of, like you said, connecting the pieces of, of, different industries of different, uh, you know, cultures geographically, different demographics purely within the United States. To me, that's really interesting. And seeing kind of how fashion as an art form and as a business has evolved over time so much, you know, dating back to when it was driven purely by couture houses and everything else kind of trickled down from there to 2018, when it seems like high fashion houses and fast fashion brands are competing against each other and in many ways are adopting many of the same tactics. Kind of looking at things more from a business perspective is what is really interesting to me. Intellectualizing fashion may not be the only way to make progress when it comes to fashion media though. Zerbo's vision of success is to use fashion as a gateway into approaching more challenging topics while building a community of thinkers and people who want to have their views challenged. Reaching this goal requires a fine balance between intellectual substance and accessibility. There's something about fashion that generally has leaned more towards like the the side of superficiality, right? In my opinion, yeah. What value is there in in terms of like intellectualizing fashion? So like, that's what I see your perspective. It's like, you're bringing something to think about, but when, you know, it, for most people it's like, and it's not to return that previous question of, oh, like, do they care or not? It's more that like, 
what value is there in digging deeper in terms of why something exists? I guess it's probably like the folly of the intellectual, (laughs) but no, I think that, you know, as, as people that have been involved in fashion or people that are just interested in fashion, there are a lot of people that just want to look at memes, but I do think there are a lot of people at the same time that have an interest that are that are thinkers that want to question things or just know a tiny bit more. You know, there's so many questions and there's so many backstories to brands and and the reasons we dress the way that we do uh, that I I find or I find to be fascinating. And do you think that the some of the systemic issues, and I, I kind of have to like laugh when I when I use that word because people <laughs> like like they kind of always troll that word when you use it in the context of fashion because it's almost like taking fashion too seriously. But Mm. do you think there is something to be said about addressing things and the issues that plague fashion from that sort of vantage point? Like you need to actually be set up from an argument level to, to actually make change and progress. So whether it's like diversity in fashion, whether it's like, I don't know, equality in wages, there has to be some sort of intellectual slant to that if you actually want to change it? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of Instagram accounts out there run by, you know, God knows who that are bringing about awareness. Um, I think that in the absence of a blueprint or a game plan, any of the quote unquote changes uh, will probably just be little blips on the radar. I think for long lasting change or meaningful change, there has to be something deeper uh, and and more longstanding in terms of the moves that are being made, the arguments that are being presented, the solutions that are being brought to the table. Because solutions when it comes to diversity or human rights issues in the fashion industry, or even just kind of questioning the the powers that be need to be packaged in a way that's attractive to people because what good is an argument if no one ever listens to it? While it it seems in theory nice to be super bunned up, sometimes it's more about getting the message across rather than all the granular details. I mean, I honestly, I think you need to have both, Yeah, uh, which is why it's so hard. That, that's yeah. why these issues persist. I do you recall people making the argument that a lot of times long form content or long form sort of journalism was really just for other journalists to partake in. It was never for like the mainstream to kind of like get behind an idea. And maybe there has to be some sort of addressing of that maybe to like, because if you have bigger ideas, like I, I think that you're probably more than happy to read, a like you're not turned off by a long article, but the regular person might be. I was thinking about this recently. I was like, how many long form articles do I actually read in a day? And it's, the number's pretty slim. Like I was embarrassed by being like two, one, depends on the day. And at times it feels kind of like giving in when you're like, okay, I'm going to try to shorten this article to as few paragraphs as I can. Uh, That's an internal struggle for me. Media consumption habits are constantly changing and media platforms need to manipulate these habits in order to survive or make any meaningful impact. Somewhere, 
in between quantity and quality is the golden mean for this generation. But even if that golden mean is found, how can a platform reach outside of its bubble? What we each see on the internet has passed through algorithms to create the best online experience for us. In this over-curated environment, our ideas are rarely tested and we aren't surprised anymore. There is part of me that, that recognizes that what we've seen to work in the past, those rules of engagement change day by day, right? The generations, whether before us currently and the next generation are going to consume media differently. And like, you can either be that sort of like old cranky guy that's like, well, back in the day, this is how we did it. But yeah, that doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, and then it's like, you're doing all of this for nothing. Yeah. And sometimes I, I, I think that that's the most critical thing is that what you think is the way to do it or what has traditionally worked, I think in a nascent space. And I think the digital world still is, you can consider it a very nascent space where it's changing and people are making mistakes Mm -hmm. publicly because Mm -hmm. there really is no sort of gauge. And I think I've always looked at digital developments like a pendulum where it Mm -hmm. swings so far to one side and they realize, oh, this is unsustainable. This is wrong. Now you, now you kind of readjust it towards a nice middle ground. I hope that's what happens with the state of things now. I mean, I think that there, there is a happy medium between just going full speed ahead, 24 hour news cycle, throwing as many articles as you can against the wall in a chase for traffic. I mean, that's not sustainable either. You had me thinking when I was wondering, you know, how many collaborations can Virgil Abloh really do before yeah. people are so sick of Off-White? And you made yeah. such a good point about, you know, the information or this content is fed so specifically to people yeah. in 2018. So only the people that want to see this are really getting it. And in yeah. theory, fatigue might never happen. Yeah, unless it will happen to the people that need to see everything. Because if you're in media, you technically need to be abreast of everything. And I think that's going to be interesting because we're in an age of like like mass personalization where we're always trying to personalize and curate the best experience. But the reality of it is that maybe we don't want that anymore. Maybe we want to be surprised because when it's curated a certain way, it's like there's no surprise, there's no... And that's the worst word to use is like no delight. You know, the, the tech, the tech sort of cliche term of delight, like mm, I was expecting this. Yeah. Just fatigue with everything. I don't know. For me, the scary part in just the intense curation of everything by us and by, you know, algorithms before it even gets to us is just kind of how it's shaping dialogues. Like you and I are here together for a reason because we obviously share someone in common, but also because we see eye to eye uh, on a handful of things. It's like, how can we as an industry um, and as individuals you know, have debate or have differing points of view if we're sharing so much of the same content, yeah. so to speak, you know, how how can we progress? How- I mean, and that's another thing too, is like I was uh, on the way over, I was listening to a podcast with Ray Dalio mm-hmm. and he was talking about like the need to have sort of a challenging of thoughts and ideas. And I, and I would say that even over the course of this conversation, none of us have said anything that like, wait, 
wait, Eugene, I don't, I don't think you're right there. You're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something that's. It's scary. Yeah. Cause I, I want it. Cause I think that people that want to develop themselves and want to progress and want to be better at their field, they're, they're more than happy to have their ideas stress tested. Yeah. Which I feel like I'm always trying to seek those opportunities, but I don't, I don't want to force it either. I'm not going to go and like. Be that troll. <laughs> Fashion is changing. It's speeding up, and whether that's good or bad is down to personal opinion. While fashion evolves, so does the media around it. Rather than give up and say that it's not what it used to be, Zerbo sees that the changes could actually signify a new beginning for fashion media, because people still value authentic, transparent media. Fashion arguably carries more influence now than ever, and if this influence can be harnessed, then it can make meaningful changes to the world. What are things that you personally are still very excited about within the realm of fashion? I'm really, really excited about expanding my own kind of writing and my own interest into industries other than fashion and looking more specifically at how they interact with fashion. Uh, I'm excited about this more macro approach to things uh, that we talked about earlier. Um, I'm excited to see Vogue's May cover. I never thought I'd be talking about Vogue right now, but their May cover, for instance, has Amal Clooney on it, uh, which in the past five years, I would have never really expected to see. For, For people who aren't familiar, like myself. Well, most people know her because she is George Clooney's wife. I know her because she is a really incredible human rights and international human rights lawyer. And for me to see her on the cover of Vogue is really exciting. That was really exciting to me because it it was surprising um, because it was just kind of a different woman. I think that she's a modern woman. I think that she's a Vogue woman uh, in the traditional sense. She's not like Kim Kardashian. But I think that kind of expanding the view of, you know, who is interesting and their relationship to fashion and the thought that that might be something that fashion is interested in exploring is really fascinating to me. And that's really exciting. I think that with the rise of social media and and with the rise of all of us being able to converse about things is the realization that fashion is such a small industry and that it's controlled by so few people, like the same handful of people do just about everything, uh, whether it's judging, you know, design competitions or serving on this board or doing something else, um, kind of realizing that and making an effort uh, to explore outside of it. That to me is really exciting. I think that what you mentioned about that Vogue cover is that fashion is still incredibly impactful because it's easy to understand for the most part, whether you like, it's kind of a very visceral reaction. Like I like that. I don't like that. But we all see what people are wearing. Like, even though you're not into fashion, you could probably be like, Oh, that person's stylish from your own perspective. So what I find interesting is that fashion at this point in time is still incredibly impactful and it also can be used as sort of the gateway into a deeper message, as you mentioned right there, whether it's advocacy or whatever. I hope. 
I, I feel some duty almost to use fashion, having identified and understood the power that it has like any other form of pop culture, um, to use it to explore topics or put forth, uh, agendas, uh, that, you know, whether it's advocacy or something else. Yeah. I think that's one of the huge, the huge powers that fashion has. And, and one of the reasons, aside from the fact that it touches every single one of us, that makes it so important. This story was written and narrated by myself, Alec Rose. The interview was conducted by Eugene Can. Audio was mixed by Elphick Wu. You can find photos for this story at Macon.com and they were shot by Heather Sten. The rest of the team includes Alex Mayland, Nate Can, Sharice Poon, and Christopher Lim.